Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and with me today is Julianne Romanello, who is a perfect guest for this point in the podcast. She is very good on the subjects of philosophy and social trends, and especially an on-the-ground perspective of what's going on specifically in the education system, which is a topic that... I have definitely delved into a lot, especially season one. And so this is our conversation. I will start off with this first section of it. I'm going to break it into sections since it is pretty long. So would you introduce yourself and let us know kind of where you come from and what your background is? Okay, well, thank you, Joshua. My name is Julianne Romanillo, and I'm a, a mom and a teacher in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And, you know, I'm new. I say I'm new. I've been looking into techno-fascism and surveillance and social engineering for uh, just about two years. And that, you know, before that, I was pretty naive. I I did my own thing. Um, I have four children, so they kept me busy. and, And I like to read and you know, just kind of mind my own business, I'd say. But I was teaching at a university, the University of Tulsa, and it's a private liberal arts and engineering university. It's small, uh, but it's comprehensive. And in 2019, they announced a dramatic restructure of the university. And I immediately knew that something was not right. And so I began to research, like who is on the board, who is making these decisions. And uh, it, the, the entire affair was, it was, I think it was cruel really uh, to the students, to the faculty, to administrators, everyone involved. And so I just started to dig and I wanted to know where it was going and why. And that led me to where I am now, looking at pay-for-success finance and public-private partnerships and Agenda 21 and all of that. Yeah, yeah, definitely topics that have come up before on this show. (laughs) Um, And I know that you have uh, talked a lot about how your school used to have a really good program related to great books and education in the true sense of the word. And you started to notice kind of that shift to a different style of schooling. Um, could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So TU, that's what, you know, how we refer to it. They've always had, it started as a liberal arts college, and it's always had a, a great tradition of hiring real scholars who are have done cutting-edge work in, in history and philosophy and political theory. Um you know, nationally and internationally known uh, contributions to the research and great teachers. You know, that was the wonderful thing about TU. Uh, That's actually where I did my undergrad. I graduated in 2003. And, um, you know, you were able to study with world-class scholars who were teachers that you could... uh, you know, have coffee with. And it was a beautiful place. Like I learned so much that I hadn't learned in a 
in the public school system, certainly. I went to public schools in Arkansas. And it, you know, we had great conversations in class and it really helped me develop this lifelong love of learning. And, you know, as when I came back, I went to graduate school down at uh, Baylor in Texas and then came back and taught as an adjunct for a while here and there and had, um, you know, I have my four kids, so like one every other year. Um, I was doing that for a while and had taught as an adjunct at the University of Tulsa. And then I was, I was able to join TU as a full-time faculty member in the honors program. And that was this great text program that I had gone through myself in, you know, 20 years earlier. And you go through the great tradition of Western civilization. And I think there are some classes now in that program that, that touch on Eastern uh, themes and philosophy. But, but I did a Western Civ and and the students, they loved it. You know, I think that the questions of the humanities, of philosophy, of political theory and history, you know, they speak to our souls. They speak to our minds like they speak to contemporary affairs and help us understand ancient ones. And, you know, I found that these 18 year olds that I had in class, they, they were excited to learn about this just as I had been 20 years before. But the direction that the school was taking was something that quite frankly, sounds like it's out of a, you know, a cold war, like thriller film, (laughs) because, (laughs) you know, we had a university president who was, uh, he was a psychiatrist by training. And (laughs) I think, um, I think he had been in the Air Force. Maybe he was an Air Force psychiatrist. Uh, And they, he was taking the university in the direction of cybersecurity, healthcare, and aeronautical drone research. So that's, that's like, (laughs) I mean, that's sort of the opposite of, you know, what TU had been known for. And, you know, to be fair, TU had a great uh, engineering program, petroleum engineering, and they have a law school and a business school. So I don't want, I'm certainly not trying to dog on those pursuits. But as the whole faculty saw this shift to cybersecurity, healthcare, and, you know, aeronautical research, It was at the the expense of those foundational courses in the humanities and liberal arts and even subjects like uh, mathematics and physics were being cut. Languages were being cut. So it seemed to me, my gut reaction to it was that, oh, well, we're moving into these, um, you know, these very technical uh, disciplines, if you want to call them a discipline, we're moving into those, but we are cutting off the uh, the knowledge base that would help to shape character, help to reflect logically and systematically on the ethical problems posed by these three disciplines. I mean, you know, drones, healthcare, 
and cybersecurity. If ever you want someone to be able to make a good decision in a field, I mean, I would think those are three that are important. But that's, you know, that's basically what was happening is the university decided to take, and I think this is directly from their marketing, a they, they were becoming a high-touch, practical, and professional institution. And, hmm. you know, that it, it really gets away from education as the pursuit of knowledge and truth, like for its own sake. And it ignores the life of the mind and the life that is sort of dedicated to, you know, exploring our humanity as, as something that is essentially bound up with the practice of philosophic reason. So, you know, it, it was just, it was difficult to watch because you knew that, I knew that the students who had gone to the university, they were, they were looking for a, a place where they could do both. They could pursue these uh, natural sciences and maybe be prepared for work in, you know, applied engineering maybe or, you know, something that was going to be more practical in nature. But they, they didn't want to get rid of that free exploratory a historical component of, of education. They wanted both. Um, and the faculty at TU, like they, I think there is a sort of mutual respect between the hard sciences and softer ones and the humanities. And, and I think many faculty members were proud of that, proud of the fact that TU was able to do both. Um, but this turn in and focus was, it was totally antithetical to that. And it really just picked up the practical side of things. And, you know, as it would turn out, those areas of, you know, uh, that the university was going to focus on, those are part of our region's workforce development plan. <laughs> and that mm. goes, you know, I, I'm not sure uh, how deep into Agenda 21, your audiences, but, you know, those workforce development plans, those are a key part of Agenda 21. And sure enough, our university was, it was being destroyed in order to be an engine of change and, and turn that, that workforce plan into a reality. Yeah. And so since you have a background in philosophy and political theory and those types of disciplines, I, I wondered, as I've listened to other interviews you've done, uh, everything always goes back to Plato, of course. And yeah. so if you go <laughs> yeah. back specifically to Republic, um, mm -hmm. in that he talks about kind of the best way to engineer a society and this ideal utopia is one where you completely control the information and the content that people are exposed to, and you control uh, even their relationships, and you don't want them to have loyalties to their family, but rather to the social body. You get people specialized and segregated by classes so that you have more control over them. And Plato specifically talks about the role of education 
and how that's very important and you need to start these things very young. Um, were these types of ideas kind of early technocratic ideas, ones that um, kind of, uh, I guess, kind of sent off warning bells in your head as you were starting to see some of these things? Yes, certainly. I mean, it 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 was like watching, I don't know, a, a dream happen. <laughs> it was so weird. Uh, but yes, it, I mean, I think it definitely goes back to that. Um, and something I haven't mentioned in other interviews, but a my colleague and good friend and former teacher, Jacob Howland, uh, he and I, he also taught in the honors program, and uh, he had just completed a book called Glaucon's Fate. And the book, uh, you know, it had developed, I mean, he, Jacob had had the idea to write the book, and then just informally, uh, several kind of academics in the in our area, uh, we had gotten together for a series of reading groups over the summer. This was before I started teaching, but uh, and we explored some of the questions that Jacob was going to write about in this book. And one of those summers, we talked about the Carmides, which is another dialogue of Plato's. And we looked at Critias, who is a, a figure in that dialogue. And we talked about the differences between Critias's uh, technocratic view of, of managing people, managing society. And then we looked at Socrates. And so we had actually spent an entire summer exploring this question of technocratic um, managerialism versus the, you know, the pursuit of truth as a way of life that is a conversion to a different sort of order. And, you know, Jake published this book, like, right before all of this came about at the university. So it was really strange because, huh. yes, it, it actually, um, you know, this question was on our, it had been on our minds as, you know, Jake had done his research and we had had our reading group and then I was teaching the Republic in this honors course. So yeah, we were definitely thinking of it. And, you know, I, I won't go too far into the question of how we interpret Plato. That's actually what I wrote my dissertation on. Uh, it was, is the, the life and work of Eric Vogelin, who who commented on Plato's dialogues, and he argued about a specific way to interpret him. So um, if you're interested in those kind of details, I, I can you know, share some links to articles. But, but sort of setting aside that question of you know, how do we know how to read Plato, I'll just say that I think what Plato does in the Republic with that, uh, with Callipolis, the beautiful city that has all of those features that you mentioned that looked a lot like Sparta, you know. Um, I think that Socrates is very critical of that. <laughs> yes. And, you know, he is, like, the practice of having, a, of having a discussion with these young men who are, you know, set up to be rulers in, in Athens, um, 
you know, he, I think he's trying to show them the dangers of this type of managerial approach to human life and society. And so because it had been on my radar, so to speak, then, and because, you know, I've, I've always been thoughtful about these existential threats to our humanity. I don't know, ever since I was a kid, really. Um, yeah, when I heard the language that was being used in the rollout and when I saw the actions of university administration to silence debate and to sever ties between, say, faculty members who shared a department. I mean, it all goes back to that development of, of Kallipolis and it, it, it was like a playbook, <laughs> you know? So to me, I mean, some people that I've met it, as I've gone in, into this truther movement, if you want to call it that, you know, they're very critical of Plato and they think that he's, he's really serious about setting up a city that looks like this. Um, but I, like I said, I think that he's very critical of it. And so when I saw these things roll out, I just wanted to jump up and say, come on, this is like we're setting up for <laughs> tyranny here. And lots of people just thought I was crazy. I thought <laughs> we read this stuff because it matters, right? Like you, like Plato still speaks to us. But, you know, that was another interesting thing that I learned through this whole strange quest that I've been on that is that, you know, a lot of academics, they, I think that they have a, uh, they're able to compartmentalize their academic interests and their life. And I guess I just, I wasn't like that. <laughs> I'm like, I read yeah. Plato to know, I, I'm trying to understand like what the best way of living is. And I take this stuff seriously. And this is not a good way to structure society. <laughs> you don't treat people Definitely. like this. So well, I don't know. Does that answer so, your question? Yes, yes. And there's this uh, a dichotomy that I've been seeing that uh, I kind of feel like, and I've come to this realization over the past probably few months, um, so it's fairly recent, but that there is this dichotomy between the natural order of things uh -huh. And a man-made, manipulated order of things. Yes. And that those two are battling. And you could look at that from a spiritual perspective where you have like Logos or God um, versus the adversary and the evil one and that type of thing. Um, or you could look at it philosophically or ideologically or however you look at it. It's still the same thing. There's still these two opposing sides. And you have some people that want to control everything manage everything, the technocracy, all of this type of stuff kind of fits in that category, even like uh, genetic manipulation, data collection yeah. and surveillance, just all of these things. Um, and I know that people still have this need for a spiritual component or an ideological component. I think that's something that's within the nature of all human beings. They want to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And find yes. meaning and no uh, morals, ethics, these types of things. And so where I have gone with that, um, with the help of some other people, is uh, looking at 
how does that get filled? Because it seems that a technocratic vision is um, kind of void of that aspect. But mm -hmm. looking at society in today's world, we see that the whole, and I call it the woke movement, for lack of a better term, um, but it's this idea of having this certain ideology that gives a set of ethics and morality, and it tells you what you should do and what you shouldn't do. It has kind of a priestly class and um, all of these things, and it's all about trusting the experts and uh, all this stuff that does kind of give that, feels like it gives that spiritual or ideological component to the uh, coldness, so to say, of technocracy and um, that type of social engineering. Um, and so I, I wonder, number one, if you just have any random commentary, but <laughs> number two, I've heard you talk a little bit about um, kind of this role of ideology. And I think you've mentioned the philosopher that you mentioned earlier mm -hmm. um, and talking about how ideology comes into play into these types of things. Yeah. So, I mean, goodness, we could really talk all night on this. Um, so let me take, let me take the easy version for, or the easy aspect of that question first. And that is for me to maybe explain a little bit about Eric Vogelin. And so he was a, this is the the political philosopher that was the subject of my dissertation. And I looked at his interpretation of Plato and I found that Vogelin illuminates what's going on today so clearly. Um, I wish that more people were familiar with his writings. I mean, that's why I wrote a dissertation on him, um, but he, he lived in the 20th century and, Came, sort of came of age before the, uh, like during the Weimar Republic. And, and as he saw the rise of the Nazi movement, his question was, how can so many liberally educated, um, you know, like Germans who pro, you know, many of whom profess to be Christians, uh, you know, like how can all of these normal people, establishment people, uh, just sit by and watch these atrocities uh, come to pass? Well, like why are political persons not speaking out against um, the violence that was beginning to happen? How can academics and scientists stay silent when all signs were pointing toward the, um, impending totalitarianism. And he just couldn't believe that this was happening. And, you know, that's how, I mean, I find myself thinking the same thing today. I'm sure many of us do, right? Yes. So we're like, but how can people not see this? How can we look at what's going on, say, in Israel, where they already have a, the your green card, these immunity passports or whatever? How can we not realize that something very sinister is going on. So that was Vogelin's question, and he spent a whole lifetime trying to understand it. And what he did was he consulted um, the records of history, and he looked at philosophical writings, uh, political writings, historical documents, all sorts of things from many different cultures, both Western and 
later in his life, Eastern, and he tried to find some uh, essential feature of, of the human condition that could help him develop a new anthropology that would, you know, in turn provide some way of answering that question. Why did people not object to these patently, um, to these atro atrocities that were you know, happening before their eyes? And what he, what he discovered was that, or what he posited, um, you know, for other people to consider, is that, you know, we human beings exist in the middle, the metaxi, that's a, from Plato's symposium, that term, that symbol. And we, or Aristotle, like said, human beings exist between uh, beasts and gods. We're in the middle. We're not one or the other. Um, you know, Plato's metaxi, like we're not quite divine, um, and we're always sort of in process. And many thinkers throughout the history of philosophy and the arts have, have come up with symbolisms that portray that in-between as the sort of existential condition of human beings. And Christianity does this, you know, where uh, we have Christ in us, but we're not yet fully unified with him until, you know, uh, the beatific vision, which occurs after this world. So that's sort of what he, he's starting from this point of, of exploring the in-between situation of human beings. And he looks at our faculty of reason, and he observes the fact that we can reflect on that that uh, that position of being in between. We can reflect on it, and we can understand that by virtue of being in the in-between, that means we can gain ground or we can lose ground <laughs> because uh, there's a there's a sort of tension, that, like both poles of this metaxy, like the end points, which are beyond our full comprehension. Those exert a sort of force on us, and we can be sort of pulled toward disorder or chaos or ananke, or we could be pulled t closer to order and truth and, um, you know, God. But we're, we're always going to be stuck in this middle position. Um, when we reflect on that and we realize that we don't really control, like we can't pull ourselves out of that in-between situation. When we realize that and we realize that that always includes the potential for us like losing being, like falling into disorder, Vogelin suggests that human beings get offended and <laughs> we don't <laughs> like it. And, and I mean, we get pissed off, right? I'm, <laughs> yeah. And so makes we, sense. <laughs> yeah. Like we, because we don't control the conditions of our existence and, and wouldn't it be nice if we could make sure that we uh, could always be tending toward order or wouldn't it be even nicer if we could make our own order? <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, I mean, it's like mm. a three-year-old. And, but so faced with this like existential um, tension, Vogelin argues that uh, some people respond to it like in a sense of wonder and they want to, they see the potential that we have to, you know, pursue truth, to grow um, in the order of our soul and to understand reality more fully. And some people embrace that and they don't care if there's the possibility for sort of failure. They'd rather try. But then others get very anxious about that, about their contingency. And that anxiety, rather than wonder, like that anxiety leads to a sort of existential closure where we say, well, I'm just going to ignore what I know to be true. I mean, people don't exactly say this to themselves, you know, like, but it's a sort hmm. of, it's a process deep in the soul, in the, in the deep levels of consciousness. And, and people try to assuage that anxiety by developing a second reality or an ideology that is more palatable. And it posits human beings as, as the authors of our existence, you know? And so, um, so they really, you know, the, like people who are living in, in this situation of anxiety and tension, they sort of tend toward your, as you, you know, set up your question, you said there's the natural order of things and then there's this overlaid artificial order. Well, that is the artificial order of things. That's where ideology is. You know, that's where these managerial systems come from. And so, you know, as Vogelin looks at some of the, at the, you know, historical efforts to, of human beings to convince themselves that they're in control of nature, of God, of, of other people, you know, they come up with, they fabricate all sorts of, of artificial accounts of reality. <laughs> and it's all to sort of soothe that, that deep existential anxiety that they have. And hmm. so Vogelin argues that that's a spiritual disorder, you know, and he, and, and he argues that because we don't create our own existence. I mean, that is a, you know, we're not the authors of our own being. That's a fact, <laughs> you know, like I, there's no way that I could argue that I created myself, you know? <clears throat> I mean, I guess I could, but I, <laughs> I, don't, think could. It'd be, I don't think it'd be compelling. Um, you know, because we don't create ourselves, we have that sense of our own contingency sort of, let's say written on our hearts indelibly and and we also have these experiences of reality um, of of its various aspects of its divine aspect which we might call god of the social aspect which is like you know our participation in this thing called humanity we have the experience of ourselves as an individual and we have an experience of the natural material of the material world, you know, in this larger, you know, system of, of 
lower order uh, participants in the community of being and plants and animals and you know atoms and protons and whatever. So we have these experiences that we can't get rid of. They're primordial, and that's of God, man, world, and society. And uh, when we posit ourselves as you know, the authors of reality, but through an ideological system, or, you know, it doesn't even have to be systematic. It could just be a part of a system, a fragment that we hold on to. Uh, we're lopping off the, the experience of the divine aspect of reality, of, of its being grounded in an ontological... <laughs> to use a fancy word, um, you know, an ontological substance that is beyond our experience. It's, it's a different level of reality, different dimension, I guess you could say. Um, so when we, but, so when we cut that off, we, you cut off the God aspect, then you're left with man, world, and society. Well, to your point, um, nature abhors a vacuum. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And if we've lopped off the God uh, experience, then it doesn't just go away. Rather, we are going to, we're going to attribute divinity to one of those other three uh, participants in this primordial community of being or these experiences that every human being has. So we're going to attribute divinity either to Humanity as a whole, that, that would be um, society, God, man, world, society. You can, you're going to make society sort of take on this divine aspect or character. Or you could attribute it just simply to yourself as an individual. Man is going to be the divine, like a particular man, one man. Or nature, the, like the... Um, you know, like the environment, uh, that could take on this divinity. And I think we see that like with the climate change narrative. I mean, I think a lot of the climate change narrative is, you know, it's utilitarian. It's a means to an end. But I think that there is, a, you know, it's been endowed with this, this divinity <laughs> that has to go someplace because we've chopped off the, you know, the divine experience that that we all have as human beings. I I think I've probably made that a little bit convoluted, but no, um, no, did it was has it? <laughs> I feel like I could have done that more methodically, but um, okay. but yeah. So so we we can't get rid of the spiritual longing that we have to move toward order, toward the divine, toward God, toward the spirit. Uh, we can't get rid of that. We're oriented toward order rather than disorder. Um, and so even though we might say, well, there's no such thing as God or, you know, and I'm using that term like very broadly, there's no thing higher than society. There's no thing higher than the planet or, or than myself. I'm, I'm the highest. Um, 
you can't just get rid of that longing for divinity. So really what you're going to do, whether you realize it or not, is you're going to bestow divinity on one of those other aspects of our life. And with the, you know, the technocratic movement, you know, it is like you say, trusting the experts. It's a faith. It's a faith in their superior, uh, I don't know, participation in some higher reality. And that's what I think, you know, with this, with, I like to call it the Corona apocalypse <laughs> with mm. the mess that we're in. And as a result of COVID, um, you know, there has, we've seen this emergence of, you know, of a, a faith, like a faith-like devotion to medical professionals, um, you know, to technology that allows us to interact with each other without touching and spreading infection, you know? So mm -hmm. I think, yeah, definitely, no, the, you know, our, you know, our, like, purest tech, technocrats, they don't want to admit this. But they are setting up this new religion. And, you know, lots of people have talked about scientism. And, and that it, that's what it is. It's sort of a, it's a new religion. And, but it's one that's open only to a few. It's like Gnosticism. So, mm -hmm. so that goes to, you know, you mentioned Vogelin and, you know, because I've talked about him. So that really kind of gives you a sense of how this is, uh, it's a spirit, he would diagnose what we're going through as a spiritual disorder. It's a disorder um, that is, it comes from offense, our, you know, our emotional response to uh, our perception that we live in the in-between. We have a disordered emotional response to it. Um, get mad instead of, you know, approaching it with wonder. And I know, you know, you're, you know, I'm, I might be taking too long for this, but I have no. recently come across the work of uh, Nikki Rapana, and she is the author of the, I think it's the anti-communitarianleague.org. I believe that that's her website. Might be .com. I think it's .org. Anyway, Nikki has, she started looking into some of these uh, reforms of, you know, that are related to Agenda 21. She started looking at those back in the 90s, and she really did a deep dive into communitarianism. And, you know, up until just a few months ago, I had not really, I, even as I'm, a, I mean, I was a political theorist, you know, <laughs> trained in political theory, and I've read plenty of communitarians, but I had not thought about the, one, like the relation to you know, our day-to-day -day affairs <laughs> that communitarianism is having. But two, I had not thought of it as in religious terms. And 
I think, you know, sort of by her coaching, you know, just I've, I am in touch with her through social media and other things. And, you know, I've read some of her writings and, and then I, I bought several books by this uh, sociologist, Amitai Etzioni. And he writes, for example, The Spirit of Community, which is, and, oh, and the, the entire title is The Spirit of Community, The Reinvention of American Society. And he has several, I mean, I don't know, more than several, I think at least 10 and probably more than that, books on, you know, a communitarian way of life. And I think people don't like to use that term because, you know, it sounds, it sounds close to communism. And so people either think that you're trying to, you know, scare them in, you know, away from communitarianism or that you're trying to soften things up or whatever. But, um, but I think that's, it's really something that we need to be talking much more about because you have this secularized version of, of what's really a religious system. And it's a religious system that's being imposed on us through uh, like Agenda 21 reforms and through like technocratic reforms. And once this whole Great Reset, Build Back Better, New Possible, New Normal is implemented, then, you know, the the tool of making sure that we are all subscribed to this communitarian religious system, it's going to be social credit scoring, you know? And it's like, how are you, are you doing enough to promote society's well-being? And we already see that language, you know, it's the, we're all in this together and I wear my mask for you and, you know, don't be self selfish. You know, those are religious symbols and they all go to communitarianism. And that is where, you know, he, he mentions like, uh, I've got the book right in front of me. He, he starts this book about the reinvention of American society with, a an introduction, it says, a new moral, social, public order without puritanism or oppression. And it begins, we hold these truths. <laughs> hmm. And he talks about, he, he says, we hold that a moral revival in these United States is possible without puritanism, that is, without busybodies meddling into our personal affairs, without thought police controlling our intellectual life. We can, that's in italics, attain a recommitment to moral values without puritanical excesses. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, the whole thing is, it's, I mean, it's a ter- he has terrible arguments throughout, but, uh, you know, he's saying we can do this without thought police, <laughs> but they're the thought police. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as so long as you think the right things, then we don't need thought police. Don't worry about it. Yes. So this is like a religion that it, you know, it tells you we can do this better. So it's lying to you. It's saying we can do this without puritanism or thought police. 
when that's exactly what it uses. It's like going to and it's going to make it's going to be this very extreme kind of puritanism where it's like you have to have these moral values that align with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Like you have to have these so purely in your life that you're not going to get a job <laughs> unless hmm. you can demonstrate it to us by, you know, some kind of biometric tracking, you know, that when which the Internet of Things will confirm that you recycled that, you know, artificial meat that you enjoyed for lunch. <laughs> you know, you. <laughs> But that's what it is. So I think on all fronts, we are seeing the transfer of, of divine reality to all of these other spheres of, of, uh, of our experience. So whether it's society, I mean, that's communitarianism right there. It's making society like the divine thing or, uh, you know, in some prongs of the environmental movement. It's not about protecting the planet, um, say, for people or, you know, out of, you know, responsibility to the planet's creator. It's not, that's not the focus of, of some environmental activism. Rather, it is really a, a sort of worship or deification of the environment. And and then, of course, you have people who set themselves up like as pharaohs and, you know, where they have this divinity. And, you know, I think some of our, uh, you know, mayors, <laughs> some of our yeah. political leaders, some of our scientists, some of these like really evil people at the very top, you know, um, like a cultist, they like they have declared themselves to be gods. So that's how they're going to fill their spiritual void. And then the rest of us are going to have to, we're going to fi have to figure out what we're going to do about it. Okay. So one of the shifts in society that I've been talking about a lot lately is this shift away from uh, basically away from materialism and into a more uh, mystical perspective. And societies do kind of wobble between one and the other over the long arc of time. And that we're kind of headed into um, this more uh, mystical or immaterial or spiritual or however you want to word that. We're heading into that, something a little more artificial, but ideational. And um, we're kind of moving out of the purely material with materialism, consumerism, it's all about get a high paying corporate job, make a bunch of money and your life is that. Um, and at the same time, it's also moving out of what I would say was filling the religious void and that would be statism where mm -hmm. people were basically worshiping the state and uh, looking to that as filling that void of something greater than themselves that's looking out for all of mankind and all this stuff. And that is more material and going into more of this ideology that is more immaterial, but still filling that spiritual void. And it, I do see you when you break that down to society, man, and the world or nature, um, I, I see the current movement really incorporating all of these because we do see that there are those at the top that are playing the role of a divinity 
And you also see that the way it's playing out for the rest of us, um, not maybe you and I, but for the majority of society, is that people are really getting on board with this idea of the social body with, um, I guess, making society the divinity, so to say, more of this idealistic view of what society is. And they're also incorporating at the same time that aspect of the divinity of the world through climate change and um, yeah, the sustainable development goals and pollution and carbon and you know, all these different things. And yeah, you have this kind of climate cult and you have the COVID cult and you yeah. have uh, the status cult. And now they're like all coming together and yeah. it's all <laughs> under the leadership of these divine experts at the top. And yeah, it doesn't matter what side. It could be a Trump or it could be a Fauci or it could be a Biden, although I don't think he has it in him, but it's <laughs> not necessarily left or right. I mean, you've got the environmentalists that worship the world as, you know, Mother Nature is divine. And then that's usually far left. And then far right, you had the QAnon movement that gained a lot of steam. Yeah. And I think it's because people were, they had this void. They had to fill it somehow. They had to have meaning in their life and believe in something better. And so, yeah, it's just really interesting. I, I really like that breakdown. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to break down this section of the interview and stop here and pick up next time with the next section and Julianne's response to this. So she is definitely touching on a lot of the things that especially came out of the Dim Age series. And uh, she gets into a lot of stuff related to the education system that has a lot of parallels to season one of the podcast. And that one in season one, I had broken things down between government, money, and education, roughly. So you had a government episode, a money episode, an education episode, and then something about the themes um, that had been covered in the previous three episodes, and then an episode that was a case study on something related to what had been covered in the previous trilogy, so to say. And that's how I did season one, from the beginning, the origins of education, money, and government, all the way to the alternative movements of homeschooling and cryptocurrency and all these things. And so... Uh, the point is that that third part of those series all through season one was education. And a lot of those topics that I had brought out about how how we define education, what education truly is, and how the education system we're in now is not performing that function of what most of us, me and you as the listener, probably view education as. Julianne touches on a lot of this as well and kind of how that is evolving in our current time that we are going through right now. And I think you'll really see a lot of parallels between uh, things going on even in your local area and things that she is touching on. So I really like how she's tying in the philosophy aspect, the spiritual aspect, the uh, trends and history and the movements going on in society, as well as specifically on education and the education system. I'm, I'm really enjoying this. So hopefully this is something you are enjoying as well. I really think that you probably are. And this interview will probably take up three episodes. I believe that's what the breakdown will be. It was roughly a two and a half hour long interview or so. So it's pretty long. So I'll break that up into three episodes. So next time you'll get part two and the following will wrap it up. And then I have another 
amazing guest that will be a very good follow-up to this interview with Julianne and the one after that, after that next interview will be the follow-up episode by Vin Armani, which will be the perfect wrap-up for this kind of series that has evolved out of this interlude between season two and season three. I will apologize again for the fact that I've already recorded the Ben Armani interview and you're going to have to wait over a month before you actually get to listen to it. Uh, That's just the way it works out. I try to lay out this podcast in a fairly systematic way so that the episodes build on each other, the themes build on each other, and uh, that's the best flow to put Ben's interview last, wrapping up these sections of interviews and then getting into season three. It really is the best flow for the podcast as a whole and I want to deliver this in a way that flows the best for you. And that is what I am going to do. However, if you are just desperate to get that, then I will be releasing it on Subscribestar uh, in its entirety. So if you are a supporter on Subscribestar, you will get that. And then if you're on Patreon, I will also release that on Patreon at some point. Uh, in the relatively near future as well. So I will release that so you can hear that too. And that will be an option for those of you who are financial supporters of the show as a thank you and as a bit of gratitude from myself. I believe that is all that I have for now. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you for all of your support, all the different types of support that you guys give me. I really appreciate that. It is encouraging to me. And I ask that you continue to listen, to learn, to explore these ideas. And I hope that you enjoy the journey as much as I am. So I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.